You're listening to the Party in My Plants podcast, and you're about to hear some very convincing data from a very cool nutritional psychiatrist about how your diet totally correlates to your mental health. So, smile. You're on candid camera. I mean, you're about to learn how to eat for happiness. Welcome to the Party in My Plants podcast, where I make healthy living as fun as a party so you'll, you know, actually want to do it and then actually feel, look, and live your best. I'm your host, Talia Pollock. Now let's get this party started. This episode is enthusiastically sponsored by a product I couldn't swear by more if I tried. Four Sigmatic Mushrooms. I didn't say swear about more. I said swear by. I couldn't swear by the magic of mushrooms more if I tried. I originally tried a packet of Four Sigmatic Mushroom Tea in a glass of hot water because, well, I was gifted a free single packet of Four Sigmatic Mushroom Tea by a friend. I had no idea what it did or what was going to happen to me. And I was skeptical because this whole mushroom thing is trendy right now. And I'm always skeptical of trendy things. Read, I avoid trendy things to not be trendy. You know what I mean? But anyway, I drank the shrooms and I felt truly awesome. It's hard to explain. I just felt more awesome than before I drank it. Since then, I've ordered it and consumed about two packets of shrooms a day and I can't get enough. I am telling you, these mushrooms are magic. Although they don't make me hallucinate in a bathtub like my ex-boyfriend's famous magic mushroom experience, which honestly, he seemed way too proud of in hindsight. But hear this, I wasn't hallucinating the magical effects of these shrooms. They are ultra scientifically proven to boost immunity and gut health. Yes, please. And thank you. And the four different shrooms that Four Sigmatic uses most, hence the four in Four Sigmatic. Eh? I just got that too. Well, like three minutes ago. But they all do different epic things for your body. Rishi helps you relax. Cordyceps give you non-caffeinated energy for sports and stuff. Lion's mane, which does not come from my lion's mane, boosts your brain. That one's easy to remember. And chaga is, yeah, yeah, good for immunity issues like when you're traveling or feeling run down and or both. Okay, enough blabbering from me. I just finished a mushroom matcha latte. Oh, yeah, Four Sigmatic has mushroom matcha powder. If I could just stop blabbering for a damn second, I could tell you that because you listen to this podcast, thank you for that, you can save 15% off any and all Four Sigmatic shroom stuff you want to buy off their site, Four Sigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com using code PARTYINMYPLANTS to save that 15%, baby. Man, maybe I had way too much mushroom matcha. Okay, onward to the show. Today's episode is part one of two because talking about eating to beat depression is that damn important. My guest today was a toughie to book, but so worth being that annoying, persistent, oh God, these people are going to hate me if they're even seeing these 39 emails girl for. But I was elated to talk to Dr. Drew Ramsey, who is a true pioneer in the space of mental health. He's a psychiatrist who actually believes in the power of food or in using nutritional interventions to help peeps overcome depression, anxiety, and other emotional wellness issues. Hence his perfect nickname, the fruit shrink. 
Dr. Ramsey has a popular New York City clinic called the Brain Food Clinic, but he doubles as a farm boy who spends time doing farm stuff on his 127-acre organic farm in rural Indiana. He has a terrific e-course called Eat to Beat Depression. He's written three books, including one called The Happiness Diet, another called Eat Complete, The 21 Nutrients That Fuel Brain Power, Boost Weight Loss, and Transform Your Health, and another called 50 Shades of Kale, which you'll hear is a plant he's particularly passionate about. As someone who has struggled with pretty severe anxiety and depression, as well as being someone who's incredibly affected by the recent suicides in the news and the knowledge that the suicide rate in the U.S. is up like 30% from recent years, this someone is extremely passionate about stopping speaking in the third person and letting Dr. Ramsey explain that since our brains burn more of our food than any other organ, the food we choose to eat is mind-blowingly critical to our brain health and our mental health. Hey, Dr. Ramsey, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Talia, it's, it's my pleasure. It's uh, fun to have a session. Uh, a session? You know. Oh, God, are you going to be psychoanalyzing me this whole chat? <laughs> I don't think I'll psychoanalyze. You know, not unless there's any particular psychoanalytically pertinent questions you have related to yourself, your mental health, and plants. I mean, then we can get in deep. I'm ready. Oh, okay. Maybe we'll just switch this from an interview to my own personal session. <laughs> <laughs> this is my master plan. <laughs> well, okay. So if people don't know what we're talking about, you're a expert in nutritional psychiatry. Is that how you would define yourself? Yeah, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm, I'm Drew Ramsey. And, and my interest is really in mental health and in brain health. And then by backstory, I grew up in a farm in Indiana. That's actually where I spend half my time now, between that and my practice in New York City. And I've just gotten really interested about how food impacts our mental health and how that hasn't been part of the equation when we think about mental health prevention and mental health in uh, eating, right? We think about all the other diseases, your heart, cancer, you know, uh, diabetes, but we don't think about depression, anxiety, uh, we don't we don't think about how food really impacts the brain. So so that's what nutritional psychiatry is about, and, and it's fun because then also as psychiatrists you get to talk about like fun recipes and. That's so cool. That's awesome. How did you get into this? I mean, I assume you started with the mental health stuff, the psychiatry, and then maybe the nutrition came in later, or was it, were you just married to both ideas from the get go? Well, I had a split, as I think a lot of people do in your life. Where there's this stuff in your professional life. So I was just a straight-up you know, doctor, psychiatrist. I, I trained at uh, Indian University School of Medicine and then came out to New York City in 2000 and was had a wonderful training. And I'm still in faculty up at the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry. Oh, cool. and, 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 and so, uh, but in my personal life, I was really healthy. I was an athlete in college. I was uh, eating at that point time a low-fat vegetarian diet but really committed to health didn't didn't drink really uh just really interested in personal wellness and then grew up on a farm and so just always grown a lot of food cooked a lot of food it's just kind of part of part of you know sitting around the dinner table is where i don't know you you could get a lot of health and mental health in my experience and and i just realized these two worlds weren't married in, mm. in any way and, and in a way that didn't feel so comfortable for me, right? Where I felt a little bit like uh, somehow an, a little bit of an outsider. And so I guess I was making more of a New Yorker and grew up a little bit and food became more of an interest and, and the data started coming out. 
probably the omega-3 fats. I started really getting into that data in the middle of my residency. And there's just a lot of information about that very sciencey stuff about polyunsaturated, long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. And those are the fats, so these very delicate, very uh, long fats that make up a large part of the cell membranes of our brain cells. And so people started taking fish oil pills and asking about them. And I don't know, it just kind of struck me one day. I wanted to know more about where these nutrients came from. And that just led to more questions about brain health and brain nutrition. And then that led into my first book, The Happiness Diet. Mm-hmm. which was really just a really fun period. I was working with Tyler Graham, who's a, a journalist um, at Rodale and, and a magazine guy, and, and just really thinking about the story of American food, how it changed, how it impacts our mental health, um, and, and how nutrition impacts mental health. And, and that's just, you know, that I don't know when that started, 10, 12 years ago. And, and since then, it's just been really interesting as more and more science has come out and there's, and I've learned more and then clinically applied more of what, what we've learned. So talking to all of my patients about food for the last 10 years, is just really a fascinating part of who we are as humans and a fascinating intervention for our mental health. Wow. Well, when you say mental health, do you mean like depression and anxiety or do you also mean cognitive function is there a correlation between the two like the better oh, sure sure yeah. I mean, that's one of the worst parts of being depressed is like you're you don't have great cognitive function or executive function or your moods all over the place so i mean both when i say mental health and i think it's a really important point to tell you like people think about psychiatry and mental health in a very like um you're sick you need meds you only go there if you're really sick and mm-hmm. we don't think about our mental health is our really most important asset and something that, you know, these aren't just genes you're given down, right? That's part of the story. Uh, and every, we all know, though, that so much of how we feel in our mental health has to do with the things in our lives and our attitudes and our daily practices. And so when I mean mental health, I, I think about, sure, to the extreme end of why people end up on my couch, the treatment of depression, anxiety, uh, disorders, bipolar disorder, uh, addiction, ADHD, all that stuff, the diagnostic stuff but also just our mental health in terms of us experiencing more joyful, more deeply connected, more intimate lives of us having healthier relationships. I do a lot of psychotherapy and, you know, the number one antidepressant on the planet is human love. Like people find that, I mean, Hmm. it's bumpy, but gosh, there's, there's no feeling like that type of attachment when you have it. And so I think that all relates to our mental health and what we in psychiatry uh, think about and consider and, and sort of, really try and understand about a human and their functioning and how their mental health symptoms um, are impairing that. Yeah. Well, what's the difference between mood and mental health? So mood is an aspect of your mental health. And so okay. when, I think, when I think about a person, or uh, there are a number of kind of almost buckets or like uh, drawers that I think of in terms of symptoms. And so mood is one of the major mental health and psychiatric symptoms. And so I think about mood in terms of the range of your mood, right? How, how sad or down you feel. And, and, and that's quite variable. Other people who wake up every morning really, you know, feeling like they don't want to be on this planet anymore, not attached to anything. And, and obviously people feeling, waking up and hopping out of it and feeling so good, too good, that it's almost a little frightening. So that's the range of our mood. We range between uh, low and depressed and, and manic and up. You think about the quality of what's called your affect, observable emotion, how other people think about and intuit your mood. And so mood is a factor of mental health. Um, another mm. kind of sector, or what I call it earlier, bucket, would be anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so there's all kinds of mood 
disorders, right? There are depressive disorders, major depressive disorder, there's adjustment disorder with depressed mood. But, you know, the overall phenomena of mood is one aspect of mental health. Like you mentioned, cognitive functioning. Mm-hmm. That's another aspect of our mental health. And so mental health really, one way that I just have started thinking about it is we're talking about brain-based disorders. We're talking about brain function. Really think, what does a psychiatrist do? We take care of brains. Mm-hmm. And, and so our mental health really is about the types of symptoms that we have and then about you know how we learn and understand ourselves and, and how we cope with those challenges. And this this is like a big question and I apologize if it's overwhelming but like what I mean it's not that overwhelming but I mean I guess I'm asking broad questions to start but um like a disorder versus just a bad mood like how do no, we know really if we're part. That's a really good question. Thank that's you. Really important. Everybody has that question like gosh you know that's one of my favorite consults is like I don't know what this thing is that I do or I feel and it freaks me out and I just want to like hear about it. I love talking with folks about that because uh it's one of, the, one of the wonderful things about being a psychiatrist is just to hear so many people in different situations and you see the ways that humans are very similar um, and, and our needs in some ways really are very similar. And then you see these all these ways that people are so different, so unique. It's, uh, That's fun. Um, so how do you know? How do you know if you're ill? Yeah. How do you know if you're sick? Well, let's go all the way back to the big daddy himself, Dr. Freud. And, big daddy. And Freud. <laughs> big daddy Freud. <laughs> Big Daddy Freud is, uh, he's got a bad rap now because he's part of the patriarchy and, you know, all of us men have a bad rap now. <laughs> but, but Freud is very, one of the interesting things that he did is he, he, or kind of a quote he has that I think we all think about in, in mental health is that back then the only treatment was psychoanalysis. And he said psychoanalysis is a treatment that cures problems of work and love. And if you look at actually all the modern diagnostic criteria, we still kind of hold true to that, that your symptoms have to equal a dysfunction in your social or, or uh, we call it, uh, social and occupational functioning. And so if you wake up and you're in a bad mood, um, so we all have that, mm-hmm. right? Do you pop out of it or no, it stays all day? Okay, well, to meet criteria for depression, uh, major depressive disorder, you need to actually have a really low mood persistently for two weeks. Oh. And, and it needs to be impairing in your function, like you're not getting work done. I always recommend people look at like the DSM criteria. These are research criteria, but we, we use them broadly clinically just, I, I just, and how you think about what are the symptoms. For example, a lot of people don't think about depression. They just think about mood, like depressed mood, but actually a major depressive disorder, there's disturbances in uh, appetite, disturbances in weight. So people gain weight sometimes, have increased or decreased appetites. So there's disturbances in sleep, falling asleep, uh, having a hard time falling asleep or, um, or sleeping way too much, uh, irritability, hopelessness, suicidal thoughts. So these are all symptoms of you know, the diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder. And how you know it, you know, or not. One is if you have a lot of questions, it's just good to talk to a mental health professional. I mean, the number one rule I think in mental health that we should everyone should be educated on is talk mm-hmm. about it. If you've got a question with panic disorder, or is my mood normal, or you know, if you're struggling with something. Talk about it with somebody, you know, start with friends, start with somebody that you know, uh, but, you know, eventually a mental health professional, we, we, you know, this is what we do for a living. And so, you know, for people with concerns, I think it's, it's always good to, to get an opinion, just like, just like you would if you felt like uh, a lump on your breast or if you felt, you know, if you got numbness in your toes, you'd be like, wow, doc. Totally. (laughs) Well, what is this? And so that's, and that's where so many people get into trouble. Because they never, they never ask. They never tell mm-hmm. anybody. Uh, that that's that's where we're, we're 
I hope, and it seems like we're really making a lot of progress emerging from uh, a time when there's you know so much stigma about mental illness and, and all the struggles that we all all have. You know, the stats are very clear that, that, you know, basically about half of people on the planet end up having some sort of significant mental health struggle during their life. And that, you know, that sort of means that all of us are affected because if it's not you, it's someone that you know and love. Well, also, I mean, I was going to say, if we're all at least half of us at some point in our life struggling, isn't like, aren't we all a little messed up? I mean, have you encountered anyone who's like just straight chilling and like has perfect mental health for their whole life and like whatevs, you know, like we're all a little well, screwy. I mean, like, no? Yeah, I'm a psycho. <laughs> no, I'm a psychotherapist, so I'm biased that like, I think that's what makes us wonderfully human. Yeah. And I, and, and I think that, you know, we're, we, we all, uh. I don't think when, when we talk about anxiety or we talk about low mood, or we talk about problems with sleep, that anybody listening has any question in terms of what I'm talking about, because we all know it. Mm-hmm. We've all experienced those things. And so you know, back to your question of how do you know if you're, you're ill, I think it has to do with severity of symptoms and frequency of symptoms. Yeah, and then it really, and that really has to do with function, right? Is it really, mm-hmm. is it, and, and that's a hard thing, especially in, urban areas like New York. So a lot of the patients I treat, man, <laughs> our ability as New Yorkers to function under incredible mental duress is pretty impressive. And right. so sometimes functioning, I, I kind of pump the brakes on that. Of It can look pretty good and you can really, you know, be having a very hard time with your mental health. Like you can still get on the subway and like get off at the right stop and go pick up your food at the store or whatever and get home. You're still functioning, but you could actually still be depressed. Yeah, all yeah. that. You you can still go to work and make a million dollars trading whatever. Okay, and go, I'm go talking home. about buying groceries, but whatever. Yeah, <laughs> going home to your wife and kids and like running some giant piece of business and still have horrible struggles with your mental health. Right. And so um, functioning is certainly, you know, one aspect. Right. So if somebody like that or anybody comes to you and they're like, Doc, I think I'm feeling depressed. What's your plan of attack? Do you first start with talk therapy or like when does the food get brought into the picture? I just break the kale salad out right away. Tell you, I'm like, whoa, whoa. Hey, you have to have my kale Caesar. Don't feel like that. Uh, I, I worry sometimes. You know, it's funny. Anytime in mental health that you talk about anything other than meds, mm-hmm. people somehow, you know, they, they get very, we, we get a little it's like reactionary defensive. So I really try and apply nutrition really responsibly. So I would, in a crisis situation, I don't take a detailed food history, but for all of pa- the patients who come and see me and, you know, that it's, there's, there's not, um, there's severity, but, but I can, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to do a safety plan right then. Um, those folks, I, I want to hear about how they eat. It tells me so much. I mean, it's such interesting data as a mental health clinician, as a psychiatrist, because food, if you think about food, I think about food as a vital sign. For me, they made pain the fifth vital sign. It's like, that was really bad. We should have made food the fifth vital sign hmm. because food is a vital sign about a type of functioning, a type of self-care, a type of orientation in the world. And so I want to hear about what people do. And it's really, it's also just fascinating because everybody eats so differently. Yeah. And so I, I take, I start out with a, what I call the simple food assessment. It's like a simple food assessment <laughs> nice. where I find appropriately for, titled. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was like, it's like marketing. I got that. Right? <laughs> so, um, uh, and so because as physicians, I found that a lot of times, first of all, we're lazy in talking about nutrition and, and not particularly well educated, although we know biochem really well. And it's, not super hard to learn nutrition, but you know, we'd ask people, so tell me about your diet. And people say, you know, I eat pretty healthy. Oh, and yeah. Then we move on. <laughs> and, and, and so we're really missing an opportunity there where, so I go through 
person's sort of day in their life as an eater, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, snacks. I want to hear about their values. Okay, what drives your eating? Ranging from nothing to look, I'm a, a vegan because of my strong belief that you know, meat kills the planet. What, whatever it is, my job as a mental health clinician isn't to like put you in a tribe. It's to help you understand your dietary tribe and your dietary preferences and to find a joyful place with food. And so for somebody who comes and sees me and is really depressed, you know, sometimes there can be nutritional deficiencies that cause depression. Um, and, and sometimes certainly people who are eating really poorly and have a horrible lifestyle uh, in terms of, you know, no exercise, no mindfulness, like all the stuff that we know keeps us feeling well. Uh, you can really turn around a lot of mental health symptoms uh, through diet, through exercise, through lifestyle. But I also think for everybody, you know, folks I put on medication, people I give, you know, whatever, Prozac and Zoloft and lithium, all those things too. It's not like just because there is an awesome data. I mean, I, and we'll talk about it, there actually is awesome data now, but th that those are primary treatments for depression. I still think they play a huge role because as people want to prevent symptoms from coming back or, you know, almost everybody who gets on medicine, even though I find the medicines are very useful and, and mostly very safe, um, most people want to try and stop it. Well, you really, again, have to have a kind of antidepressant lifestyle going on, especially if you've had bad clinical depression or mild clinical depression. So, so food should be part of the conversation and part of a treatment plan, just like exercise should be. The data behind exercise and depression is, is quite impressive. Wow. And, and that's the piece that's missing. You know, our plans are like, you know, psychotherapy once a week, Zoloft. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, I certainly have a lot of patients on that regimen. I, I like that regimen, <laughs> but I also want to, you know, be a force of good in their life around improving their overall sort of lifestyle. Totally. Well, you mentioned the vital signs and that, that food should be the fifth. What are the vital signs? Vital signs are like heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, respiration rate. Those gotcha. are every patient, like when you're a medical student, every patient that you see, you, you get, you know, that, that's like the first question. This is John, you know, heart rate 56. <laughs> mm. And so you're saying like tongue in cheek that finding out somebody, what someone eats should be considered, you know, very important equally to heart rate and stuff. I think it should. I, I mean, you know, the, yes, I think it's a vital sign about how a person functions. So do you see but both in research and with your patients, like a direct correlation between a crappy diet and a crappy mood? No, I just want everybody to think about that question for a little bit for yourself, everybody listening. I want you to I want you to think about that for a second. Stop psychoanalyzing me. <laughs> no, no, no. I just say no no, I'm not psychoanalyzing. I'm not this isn't psychoanalyzing. <laughs> I just I want everybody to because it's been a striking finding for me that everybody knows the answer to that question for themselves personally in a very powerful way. Right. Totally. But there's but there's a there's a disconnect that I've actually had a hard time understanding as a clinician and it sort of as a person it just made me really curious about people that there's a disconnect somehow that we don't think about as you said is there a direct correlation basically between what we eat and how we feel mm. and so it's strange it's something we all know it's a someone once said you know uh, pitched as a subtitle for that because like eat you know eat right feel right mm -hmm. like very simple. And, and we all intuitively know that, but, but let's talk about the data. I think your question maybe is a little, what's the data? So let's have like a little. It's more, more yeah. Okay. So, I mean, obviously that for me and my listeners and whatever, we all know that our food affects how we feel, right, right. but yeah. a interesting. Cause when I think how I feel, I think like energy and digestion and like vitality, I haven't actually necessarily thought like 
eating healthier actually makes me have, you know, a less depressed outlook on today or view the cup more full, not half empty. Well, let's let's sort of talk about some nutrients. And then you and I agreed we were going to do lots and lots of takeaways. Yes. So let's just so quickly, let me tell everybody the data because it's interesting. Lots of people want your ear and in, in, in your opinion about what to eat. And so here's the data that really drives my recommendations. And and this evidence is really at the core of got an e-course, Eat to Beat Depression. And again, I think there are a lot of ways to beat depression. But I think food, it's one of those foundational elements that so many people seem to be to be missing. So anyway, let's just, uh, the data, as I said, so correlational data is studies that track people, populations over time and, and see what happens. And correlation doesn't tell us a lot about cause, like what causes depression. But what's happened over about the last 10 years, 15 years, is a number of studies started seeing, hey, for example, one in Spain followed university students, 10,000 of them over four and a half years. And it found that those university students who ate most like a traditional Mediterranean diet mm-hmm. had about a 48 to 52% reduced risk of getting depressed during college. Hmm. That's a really interesting study. And then that's been replicated time and time again. And so that's correlational data. There are a number of studies um, looking at ADHD risk, depression risk in adolescents. And we look at what's called dietary pattern. So usually most traditional diets, this data exists for the Japanese diet, for a Norwegian diet, um, uh, traditional diets, which is, you know, the food I suspect most of your listeners know about and love, right? Whole real vegetables, lots of leafy greens, some seafood, nuts. Uh, I'm a fan of bean and grains. I know those are controversial, but uh, I'll just fess up to that right now. <laughs> And so, so there's this decreased risk. So that then in medicine leads us to a question like, that's great. That's interesting. That's correlational data. We need a randomized clinical trial. And so last year was very exciting. There were two randomized clinical trials, uh, well-run studies by well-respected researchers, um, Felice Jacka and uh, Natalie Parletta, who are both based in Australia. Mm-hmm. And they took individuals with depression. Most of them were already in some sort of treatment. And they taught them the Mediterranean diet. You got like a Mediterranean diet cooking class uh, weekly or every other week. Mm-hmm. And they followed them just like we would in a medication trial with, with formalized rating scales. And then there was a control group. These people, they got to like hang out and, and not eat, you know, healthy brain food, but, but have a snack and talk. And so what, what both studies found is there was a significant improvement in the individuals who were eating the Mediterranean diet or more like the Mediterranean diet. And people changed their diets like in simple ways. They basically ate more leafy greens, they ate more nuts, they ate more legumes and lentils, they ate more seafood. So these trials, uh, the first was called the SMILES trial. And the oh, second was, cute. Yeah, it was cute. Uh, that's <laughs> Felice's trial. And Felice is like, she's she's an incredible woman, incredible researcher and really a leader of what's being we can now call nutritional psychiatry. So if people want to check those out, they're actually open source. You just Google smiles, Felice Jacka or Jacka, and it'll come up. And the second study is healthy med study uh, trial. And that was, uh, came out in the fall and that's Natalie Parletta. And so those are I think, just two examples of a growing body of data. Now it's medicine. We're very data driven. We're very evidence driven. And we want to protect our patients from treatments that don't work. And I think people sometimes don't, maybe appreciate that, that one of the, you know, on the physician side of things, one of the reasons that there's sometimes concern or suspicion uh, about, you know, some holistic treatments or using diet, it's not so much, I think that, you know, everyone's in the pocket of big pharma. Uh, that's really not the case for most of us. It's more that we've seen a lot of people suffer and not get better with treatments that don't have evidence. Mm. And so, so what's, what's kind of shifting now 
because we've got evidence. And it's been fun. The American Psychiatric Association actually has hosted um, or had a, a workshop on food and brain health for the last five years. Actually, last year in San Diego, David Boulay came out and gave a talk. I mean, it was packed. <laughs> the sh- the sh- Party. And, and, yeah, exactly. The David <laughs> Boulay Party at the American Psychiatric Association. There's <laughs> like a blast. Um, it's, <laughs> there's, um, there's a lot of uh, chatter and talk about food and mental health. And so, that's great. You know, what seems is happening is, we're doing a much better job as a country talking about food. Um, you know, I, 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 for example, I eat incredibly cool, you know, fun, creative, chef-driven food, all locally grown in Indianapolis, Indiana, every time I go there now, which is not what people would expect. Uh, you know, and that's really true throughout America. Right? So we're really focused on food and thinking about it. And then now we're talking about mental health. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a very exciting time. Also, because now we have this new evidence um, suggesting it should be part of the conversation. And that's really, I guess, the hope of my work is people just you know, consider it. That, again, if you're having a low mood, what do I do? I think like, all right, how am I eating? Right. right? And, and more than just that, like, we can talk about some nutrients. I mean, the, the Eat Complete, my most recent cookbook, goes over the 21 nutrients that I feel are most important for brain health with, with the data. It's not just me, but like, this is what the data indicates. So, and stuff that people know about, right? Vitamin B12, the omega-3 fats, but really trying to help people understand what's the difference between a plant-based omega-3 fat, which really doesn't have a lot of, it's a healthy, good fat, but that's not what your brain is made of. Oh. Uh, you convert some of that to longer chain omega-3 fats, DHA and EPA. But there are a lot of genetic differences in how we process those fats and a lot of ways that stress and other factors can influence how well we, we take the plant-based fats and make the uh, really the brain-based fats, the, the fats we use to make the brain, EPA and DHA. And so the book goes through those nutrients, explains the functions of those nutrients in our brain and the evidence that correlates them or, or, or suggests that, you know, for example, they're very implicated in depression. Something like folate, for example, or iron or vitamin B12. If you're low, you just get clinical depression. There's like not a... Really? There's no, there's, yeah. Like, like if you're low in B12... Like it just like happens. There's, there's no... Like if, if you... Don't take a B12 supplement, eat a vegan diet, your B12 level will drop over a few years, then your brain cells uh, basically start to wither and die, and eventually you show up in ER with psychosis or dementia. I mean, wow. it's just, and it's not like, that's not a controversial, maybe it sounds controversial, Dave, and I, I, I don't mean it to be. It's just to kind of make the point that brain cells depend on certain nutrients. Right. And when we don't, when we don't eat them, they don't function as well. Mm-hmm. And so, Nutritional psychiatry is really like, let's make sure that your plate is loaded with those nutrients and let's eat for what we call nutritional density to make sure that you're getting all of these nutrients for the fewest number of calories. Right, right. And so that's where it brings us something like an oyster. Like an oyster is an incredibly nutrient-dense food, lots of protein, but also lots of zinc, lots of B12, lots of long-chained omega-3 fats, lots of iron. And these are all essential brain nutrients. You get an East wow. Coast oyster is about 10 calories. Mm-hmm. And so really, one, so bivalves, muscles, plants, and oysters become one of my top recommendations. Um, because as people think about seafood, you know, it sort of becomes wild salmon, wild salmon, wild salmon. Wild. And I love right. wild salmon. We all love wild salmon. <laughs> uh, you should try and love wild salmon. It's great, great, great brain food. Uh, but how do you mix it up and diversify um, in that food category? Yeah. What are other great sources of B12? 
if that's so important for people to get, do you think even non-vegan should supplement with B12? So I don't think anyone should supplement with anything. Eat Complete is about my thought that before 1912, we discovered the first vitamin, vitamin B1. I didn't know that. Vitamin B1 was the first vitamin and it was, uh, wow. Okay, how did we discover it? Uh, oh my gosh. You know, the story of the vitamin B12. Is it boring? Uh, so is it a good story? It's not that boring. I'm worried. I get it in the story of Barry Barry confused. <laughs> and so, uh, but if I remember the thiamine, I believe is the, the good story around that is that there, uh, the Japanese Navy was feeding polished rice uh, to its soldiers on one ship and uh, unpolished on another. And what, what ended up happening was they developed uh, what's called beriberi. It's a, it's a, a neurological uh, disorder um, where you start to waste. And, and so the issue is they weren't getting any vitamin B1 in their diet. Huh. And so they looked for this thing called antithiamine factor. They found when they gave the unpolished rice, so that the you mm-hmm. know uh, rice that has the uh, you know basically not white rice, right? Um, that they didn't have that problem, and, and so they discovered this thing that they called antithiamine factor in there, which was vitamin B one. Fascinating, cool. Thank you. Little history lesson. Well, let's hope I got it right. That's whatever. One of the we won't fact check you. Okay, I would. I didn't go through my. <laughs> but you don't think people should supplement at all? Oh no, that's what you were supplement? saying. So the whole point is 1912. There was a lot of human happiness before then, a lot of smiles, human a lot happiness. of love, right? I mean, you didn't need a multivitamin to make that happen. And this whole idea, like, well, multivitamins and insurance policy, I just think that's such garbage. Like an insurance policy against what? Eating like crap, right? Touché. And so, sure, if you're in a place that uh, you can't get food, if you're in a refugee camp, if you have a nutritional deficiency, like, yeah, like, you can supplement. I have a patient with iron deficiency right now. I'm giving them iron. <laughs> right. right. But but I'm also wanting to understand where did that deficiency come from? And does he know what the top source of iron is? I, I went to the doctor, actually, in my, years ago, my potassium was just a little bit on the low side. Hmm. And. What are the top sources of potassium? One of the most important minerals in our body. Yeah. And, and we all say banana. Great. What else besides banana? I get tired of eating bananas. I like them. I like them. I don't want to eat two bananas every day. You right. need 2,400 milligrams of potassium. The top source, surprisingly, is the white bean. Huh. So white bean, Swiss chard, Swiss potatoes. Begins to sound like a party in my plants, right? <laughs> nice. So focusing on those foods more uh, just naturally makes sense for me. Right? Right. As opposed to taking what? potassium supplement same thing and so some supplements sure i I like some i use to treat my patients with mental health concerns uh, but i I don't really i'm not a fan of supplements uh, or or uh, yeah i'm not a fan of supplements and i'm a little annoyed too i guess as a prescriber that you know there's both deregulation there's no regulation of the supplement industry right there's lots and lots of horrible toxins. Mm-hmm. There are lots and lots of super extensive private label supplements that have huge kickbacks to the people prescribing them. Right. And, you know, like when I give you something, I don't get any kickback. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't get, I don't prescribe anything that has cadmium in them or has uh so anyway. Yeah. I just, Okay. Uh, in, well, in, in the hap- in the happiness diet, there's actually a uh, hundred. There's a list of a hundred reasons not to take supplements. Wow, um, that's a lot uh, of or, reasons. Yeah, it's a hundred. You know, or not to choose supplements over nutrition, as I cool. think how we probably put it. But anyway, so let, 
So, so I don't think you should supplement unless, of course, you're a vegan or a vegetarian. And then for sure, every vegan listening, you've got to be taking B12. Please take B12. There's all kinds of fun ways to take it. I just take a lot of it. Uh, and uh, people sometimes think you need an injection, you need a sublingual. Usually, uh, sublingual or oral is is fine for just about everybody. Like a spritzy in the mouth or like under the yeah, like a dissolvable. I mean, these are just, yeah, this is again just where people are 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 making ex- making cheap vitamins expensive. Right. And so, um, but vitamin B twelve is something everybody should take uh, who, who isn't eating meat or seafood because those are the sources of vitamin B twelve. Nutritional yeast is also a good one for yeah. vegetarians because it's a, it, that's a supplemented food or fortified food, and it's damn um, good. Food. It's on popcorn. Mm, <laughs> mm. So Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about the happiness diet and eating to beat depression. So we talked about no supplements, not ideal, but what? Yes. What are we saying yes to? What are brain foods? Let's go over the core brain foods. So in our clinic, so Samantha Okrifa, who I think is going to be on a little bit with yeah. you. It, uh, she and I work together. We're both therapists here in our, in our clinic in New York. And we think about food in terms of food categories. And so food categories are big brain food categories. When we work with patients is we take a food history and then we think about when we look at it, what's this person's dietary pattern? Do they have the 12 year old boy diet pattern, which we see a lot of <laughs> French you know, fries, pizza, mac and cheese, yeah. the, the New York version, the New York version of the 12 year old boy diet, like truffled mac and cheese yeah, with like lobster in it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. That's uh, so funny. But, yeah, I had the best delicious uh, uh, spaghetti with uh, red sauce last night. So I'm 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 a pasta fan. Anyway, so <laughs> we think about food categories, right? Pasta is not one of the food categories. Uh, dietary pattern, and then these food categories like leafy greens, right? So you know, I love kale. Uh, obviously, you've written you know, Fifty Shades of Kale and yeah, you Kale Day. And- call- yeah, wait, yeah, yeah. NPR named you a kale evangel- ev- evangelist. Am I saying that wrong? I, I think there are many of us, and I and I, <laughs> I and I think that uh, yeah. And you co-founded National Kale Day. Let's yeah, pump Jennifer. the brakes for a sec. What is National Kale Day, and what is Fifty Shades of Kale? Okay, those are my second books of fifty. So uh, Fifty Shades of Kale <laughs> is uh, they reject they rejected my subtitle. Don't get rough, get roughage. But oh uh, my god, I love Fifty it. Shades of Kale is like a kale cookbook. It's a okay, worship of our our queen of greens. Um, <laughs> she somehow took over my body and became, sort of became my muse some, <laughs> at some point. Um, after, and. So it's a book of kale That's recipes, so cool. everything from kale cocktail to the best recipe. I'm just going to give it up right now. And the best it? recipe, in my opinion, in the book is the kalanaise. Uh, and, and the kalanaise is a way of taking something that I personally love, mayonnaise, mayonnaise. And, and, and doing what we do with in brain food, where we want to increase nutrient density. You have something like mayonnaise, eggs, and I would say olive oil is what you should make it out of. How do you bump that up? Well, you bump it up by adding lots and lots of nutrients. And so you blend in some kale, you blend in some lemon zest, you put in a little garlic, right? And suddenly you've got, first of all, it's beautiful. You do it with yeah. purple kale and red kale and you get this like nice purple dip. You can do it obviously with the green kales. You get this nice, beautiful sort of minty green uh, colored dip. And it's amazing. It's amazing on, you know, you put that on uh, you know, uh, instead of sandwich. cream cheese on yeah. Uh, yeah, sandwich, bagels and locks. So uh, I love the Kalanese. Uh, wow. but it's, it, it's a kale cookbook and the National Kale Day just came out of that. I mean, we did this fun, Jen and I did this fun, uh, sort of silly cookbook, very sexy, very sexy cookbook, I would say. <laughs> I mean, it sounds and, like- it, and it was secretly a brain intervention in my mind, which I just thought, boy, you know, can we 
make this food pop because it's such a great example of a brain food. Why? It teaches, yeah. Why it is teaches about nutrient density. So it's well, tell us nutri- what nutrient density is nutrient also. Nutrient density is the number of nutrients you get per calorie. Gotcha. So let's just use kale as an example. Well, we're it going tops there. the scales of nutrient density because a cup of kale has 33 calories. Mm-hmm. And then just what do you get for those 33 calories? Those 30, you get 600, over 600% of your vitamin K. You get over 200% of your vitamin A. You get 134% of your vitamin C. You get folate. You get iron. You get more absorbable calcium than you get in milk because it's a low oxalate green. And then on top of even a few more, all of those nutrients, you get fiber, you get a little protein. Oof. On top of all that, you also get phytonutrients, sulfurophane, quercetin, all these all these magic molecules. I think about them as signaling molecules, so like signal to your cells, like, bro, <laughs> fight inflammation, yeah, be a healthy cell. Let's do it. Girl, like, do it. <laughs> it's like, only one on. cup you're talking about right now. No, yeah, also, yeah, yeah. just in one general. Cup. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there, so you know my scale salad. I usually have three or four. Yeah, cups, right. Smoothie? So that's interesting. Three or four cups of kale uh, with a little bit of olive oil on it. That's about the same calories as you have in a can of soda. Mm, so wow. about 140 calories. And and uh, and think wow. again. The soda has a little bit of salt in it and sugar and no nutrients. <laughs> oh, and so that's really the definition about of soda. Yeah, so that's the definition. That's an empty calorie, and that's no nutrient density. Gotcha. So eating for nutrient density is about adding more plants, not in just in your pants, but in your diet, <laughs> right? And and um, and having a plant based diet, and then making sure that you top those plants. Focus really on what the brain needs. Focusing on these core brain nutrients like long chain omega three fats, iron. Uh, you know, you can find most nutrients the brain needs in plants, but, but not all of them. And so uh, along with leafy greens and, and another category, rainbow vegetables, we focus a lot on seafood and meat. Seafood, because few Americans eat it, of about 14 pounds per person per year. We focus on uh, meat because so many people get it wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I spent half of my time on a farm in Indiana and half of my time in a, uh, New York City. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so I really, and I like that. I like, I like trying to eat well in the Midwest because one, you can and two, it, there's a it, there's a challenge to it in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, so so people live on deli meats and smoked meats and 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 hamburgers and steaks, and that's really not how you want to do meat. Um, and so we 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 try and help people um, really improve and consider their relationship with meat um, uh, for a number of reasons. Other food categories we focus on nuts, mm-hmm. uh, almonds, cashews, walnuts, uh, pepitas, uh, pistachios, like just just Really, that that's probably the number one kind of snack that we have people going for to. Brain. Just, yeah, is yeah, it true and, and that because a walnut looks like the brain, it's good for the brain? I think it's true. I mean, I don't know. I think it's true. <laughs> have you heard? That? Um, I'm sure you've heard. That. I've I've heard that. Yeah, walnuts <laughs> have a lot of the omega three fat ALA in it. They're good for your brain. Nuts are good for your brain for a lot of reasons. One, lots of fiber, good for the microbiome. And two, just you know, a lot of we a lot of way we're thinking about brains and brain health now revolves around this buzzword of inflammation, and and one of the things that certainly drives inflammation is all these empty calories and processing all these simple sugars. And so one of the reasons that nuts are great is they're fat and protein basically, and mm-hmm. a little bit of carb, and so you just don't get that spike in blood sugar. That's why when I'm in my schlumpy like two to four p.m. seeing lots of people listening a lot, need to be very alert. I, I don't go for a cracker or some sort of carby thing. I always am nibbling on nuts, nuts and dark chocolate. Mm, so dark chocolate's allowed? Dark chocolate's allowed. My, my, my little quick, quick, quick down and dirty brain food 
uh, mnemonic or a little rhyme would be seafood greens, nuts and beans, and a little dark chocolate. <laughs> That's amazing. And dark chocolate is also good for the soul as well as the brain. <laughs> it, it is good for, it's actually, yes, it is good for the soul. Uh, and if you don't believe that, you just got to close the eyes and focus more on it while you eat it and and then, and then you'll be convinced. Yeah. So if someone's already eating a plant-based diet, are they like good? I mean, in terms of eating for brain and eating for depression, like sounds like it. Well, it depends on what kind of plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you look at your plate and you mainly see plants, that's good. I think to not take supplements and, and have optimal brain health, according to the data as I read it, and you know, people differ on this, but my, my opinion is Having more seafood in there is, is, is some seafood is good, whether that's uh, a lot of vegans uh, secretly love mussels. And really? when I, when I, well, some do. I mean, I've, I've had a number, uh, treated vegan once who was from Belgium and uh, loved eating mussels and shellfish. And so uh, I think funny. it's one of those things that it, when we move beyond like the labels and sort of the tribes and, and really focus on feeding the brain, um, yeah, getting some seafood in there. I think for most people, and most people do eat meat, and I think the the health scare around meat is really a good example of where medicine and media have have done a really bad job. We've all done a really bad job informing Americans about nutrition, and, and I would say Americans have done a bad job of understanding the the new science of nutrition. It's not very complicated. So many people are still in that kind of low fat, low carb, only eat plants, like kind of extremist view. That's really just it's not joyful and it's not very helpful. Right. Okay. That's really helpful. And what about things that people are eating? I mean, are there things that you say, don't eat this because it's going to contribute negatively to your brain health? For sure. I mean, so, you know, and let's go beyond the one everyone knows. We all just talk about how sugar and sugar is toxic. And I don't know, I wrote a blog for well and good about how I think sugar is a miracle. Not like you should eat lots of sugar, but sugar is the base of the food supply. And there's some way that like name calling about nutrients, I just get a little frustrated. Name with. Like, calling. It's That's like funny. cholesterol. It's like, you know, like, you know, cholesterol is like a miracle. It's a beautiful molecule. It's a fascinating molecule. Every cell in your body has cholesterol. You wouldn't be alive without cholesterol. Like, let's stop talking trash. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, yeah, so stuff to cut out, highly processed foods, things that deliver tons of carbohydrates and simple sugars to your body. I tend to cut out pretty much anything that comes from a package or a box, mm -hmm. uh, just uh, or read ingredients closely. Um, I think that you should upgrade stuff. So I like bread and carbs. I eat wheat, um, you know, but I get really, really high quality bread and it's not a huge part of my diet. I like eggs and toast. Like, Sorry, I'm going to eat eggs and toast. I don't think there's a nutritional reason not to, <laughs> right? But I just I get a sourdough bread, or I get a, there's lots and lots of nuts and seeds, and always whole grains, and you know it has three or four ingredients like uh, whole wheat flour, water, salt, yeast. That's good. I think stuff to to certainly avoid uh, or, or anything with you know lots of preservatives, artificial colors. I I, I sort of don't. I don't know. I have kids, so like I eat birthday cake because you have to because the wish doesn't come true. It's <laughs> so like li living on the upper oh, side the for a while. Like, like, yeah. Oh, cool. You didn't know that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Shit. That's why none of my wishes but come true. Think about all the tears that would be on the Upper West Side if I didn't <laughs> eat the birthday cake. Right? So I'm like at like six pieces a weekend some weekends. Wow. Like, and How many know, kids so like, do you have? <laughs> uh, they're not my kids. <laughs> um. You'll see. You'll get that. It's like, yeah, your diet becomes a uh, birthday cake and pizza, just because that's what that's what's there. Anyway, <laughs> um, so 
obviously getting rid of processed food, fast foods, other specific things. Certainly trans fats are quite, quite awful, uh, about double your risk of depression. Um, I mean, this sounds really intuitive to my peeps and myself. I mean, we, we eat lots of plants. We don't eat a lot of crap. Some of us, myself included, eat some fish, you know? So, but for other people, I assume this is like life-changing information. When you have people come in with like severe depression uh, or anxiety, or when you say like, stop eating the crap, is that a real struggle for them? Is that well, like a yeah, light bulb? Yeah. I think, well, that's not a light bulb. People, you know, they know. You're right. I, I think your peeps and and, and know and about brain food, and you know about brain food. I think the part that people sometimes struggle with is um, the consistency and certain certain foods. I think people really struggle with seafood. I think people struggle to do meat right because most people just either don't do it or they do it kind of ho hum. Mm. Um, they're not, you know, they're not making like vegetable beef stew, stew with like the beef shank um, or beef stew in general, which is just one of my a great way to do beef. Um, where are some other places? Sometimes I think people struggle they forget dairy? about the, the fer- fermented foods. And then dairy is a very individual thing. I mean, I, I, I like, I love goat cheese. I have goats on our farm and you know, I, I, uh, I, I think that's, uh, so is dairy okay I, for the brain? It depends who you are. Oh. I mean, dairy, I don't think dairy is bad for the brain. I don't believe like casein is a toxic molecule that some people do, but, but I don't think drinking milk as an adult, I don't drink milk. Put a little half and half in my coffee sometimes. Definitely have some cheese, but you know, use it. So you're not bake. just drinking chocolate milk, like the 12 year old uh, diet I mean, we spoke about. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know when the last time you had chocolate milk was but i did and man it was amazing i make chocolate almond like cacao almond uh, milk sometimes for dessert it took me back um (laughs) is eating for brain health the same thing kind of as eating to fight depression or beat depression and what about anxiety is it the same same rules apply here well the short answer is eating for brain health and eating for depression certainly are related and i would say the same thing in the sense that there's, there aren't super specific foods for depression. It's more it's not of like about blueberries or right. like well, Swiss the, chard. Yeah, it's no. It's, it's a general I, we diet. Think, we think about it in those categories of it's not just Swiss chard. It's that you're eating leafy greens mm-hmm. and you're eating them every day. It's not just right. blueberries. Blueberries are great, but if you never ate a blueberry, you could have amazing brain health. Sure, there's right. a couple studies about blueberry phytonutrients that are really good for you those same phytonutrients are in some grapes or in you know other purple foods like eggplant so it's more um having a diet that has that diversity um getting away from this notion that moderation of everything is good that's a really bad advice uh, i would say that you know there are certain things that are good for us real whole foods and then really listening to yourself and, and being consistent in terms of anxiety and other mental health disorders, anxiety, I did, I reviewed some of this for Medscape and you can sign on to Medscape actually for free and, and check out. I've done a bunch of video blogs, uh, reviewing all the data for anxiety and depression, uh, and diet. But there's not a lot of data about anxiety and really? diet, even though we know that's you know, a clinic. I mean, Samantha and I treat lots of folks, um, and food uh, with, with anxiety disorders and food is really an effective tool. Hmm. Well, I imagine that it's also the crap food, the highly processed, you know, lots of refined sugar food can contribute a lot to anxiety, right? Because you're spiking and crashing sure. your blood sugar sure. and all that crap. Yeah. So then removing that and replacing it with whole foods, I'm sure is incredibly effective. 
It, that's exactly right. So get, yes. being, getting people be to eat more consistently should be a nutritional psychiatrist. <laughs> I would, that would be awesome. All right. Well, I have to, I can't let you go without asking you what your favorite plant to eat is. Uh, right now, I'm into the sunflower sprouts, growing them yourself in the windowsill. Uh, I like like meditatively harvesting them. I think they're like the ve- veal of the vegan world, actually, because that thing would be, it would be a sunflower. Oh, my God. You're sacrificing it. If I put it on my bagels, I put it in my lentil soup. Do you massage soup. it? I- uh, no, no, they're really gentle. The best, my favorite is I put them in an omelet. Oh, oh so good. The sunflower I've never sprouts. heard of that. Oh, so good. And is that also your favorite brain food right now? No, 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 no. Let's see. Right now, it's uh, a tough one. Right now, my favorite brain food. Come on, use you your know, brain. I, Think of it. <laughs> I would say, you know, I have a huge, crazy weekend of reporting on the American Psychiatric Association Conference all weekend and flying up to Toronto and giving a talk. So right now, my favorite brain food probably is dark chocolate. Oh, uh, there you go. And, Soul food, just, too. Yeah, dark chocolate and nuts. I'm just living on that. It's like I gave up coffee about three weeks ago. And so it's been oh. pretty, it's my only stimulant. Oh, coffee, man. Or, or chocolate. chocolate. All right. Well, where can everybody go to stay in touch with you and learn about your Eat to Beat depression course and all that stuff? For sure. Uh, so first of all, thanks everybody for listening. If you, and um, if you want to hear more about brain food and, and check out what we're doing, um, you can always check out our website, which is DrewRamseyMD.com. Uh, I come on over to Instagram at DrewRamseyMD and same thing on, on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm DrewRamseyMD, mainly on those platforms. And then check out the e-course. Uh, the e-course is a video-based course with about 50 or 60 videos really just going over and i just really tried to give folks like a three to five minute video of like let's break it down this is what b12 is this is why it's good for you this is where you find it these are the challenges these are the issues um and and so going over the key brain nutrients talking about neuroplasticity and the new science of brain growth and then really getting into my favorite part of the e-course is really getting into how do you enact behavioral change there's a whole in a series of videos for each food category and really thinking through how to create your game plan for that food category. Mm. And, and so, yeah, check out the books, uh, Eat Complete, 50 Shades of Kale and the Happiness Diet. And then, you know, October the 3rd, 2018 is National Kale Day. It's number six. Wow. And, and we're, we're going to be, uh, who knows what we'll be doing this year, but generally I like to just throw as big of a kale party as we can. So if everybody in, uh, you know, is listening wherever you are, throw a kale party. People ask me, how do you celebrate National Kale Day? And, you know, I know that everybody listening already knows how. So enjoy your kale, everyone. I know, we throw everyone. a National Kale Day every day. <laughs> and my wedding is October 5th, and we will be serving kale. So we'll have a little belated oh, celebration, good, too. Good. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on. My pleasure. Have a great afternoon. You too. Thanks so much for listening to the Party in My Plants podcast. I hope you have lots more mental clarity, (laughs) mental, get it, on what to eat and what not to eat to keep your brain well fed. If you took anything away from this brilliant chat with Dr. Ramsey, I hope it's that you now know that dark chocolate is doctor approved for your brain. Basically, it's prescribed. It's mandatory. It is essential, my friend, that you eat more dark chocolate for your mental health. Tough nookies deal with it. But in all seriousness, if you are feeling down for two weeks or more, or you're experiencing depression that's affecting your ability to sleep, eat, or function, please don't just pop some dark chocolate and try to get over it. Please go talk to someone, okay?
Okay, good. For the spark notes of this mind-blowing chat with Dr. Drew Ramsey, links to a great TEDx talk he gave about brain food, a reminder of what's in the kale and A's recipe he so loves. Remember, mark your calendar for October 4th, National Kale Day, baby. For all this and lots more, head to partyinmyplants.com slash 93.